Brethren, if you have your copy of the scriptures, let me ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And let me get, begin by saying that two Fridays ago, we uh, opened up our home to our neighbors in order to have a basically a, a Christmas open house. And um, I'm thankful for the time that we had. I really am. Um, I like going Christmas caroling, but I, I, I just have the sense that whenever we go Christmas caroling, I feel like I'm just giving my neighbors a high five and then we just move on to the next house. Again, I enjoy doing that, but being able to have people in our home and being able to look them eye to eye and just talk to them is really a, a very rich, and valuable opportunity. And I have to say that um, as we had the opportunity to talk, we were able to talk about eternal matters, about the gospel. And in our time together, we sang some Christmas carols, and I was able to share my testimony about my first Christmas as a child of God. And it's really a very memorable moment for me because the Lord had saved me. And just a few months later, that December of that year that I was saved, uh, I was asked to help out with the communion service on an evening service. And uh, I was just a, a new baby Christian, and I didn't know very much. And I remember uh, preparing for that time as one who uh, didn't really own a lot. I didn't have uh, nice clothes to wear. And here I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm going to be helping serve uh, communion. Um, so I couldn't wear my dress uniform, which was the only suit that I owned. So I wore what I had, which was just a pair of raggedy jeans, a racquetball shirt, and some flip-flops. And I'm going to tell you something. If you wear flip-flops and you're walking down the aisle in a sanctuary, a big sanctuary, the echo is terrible. Those were the loudest flip-flops known to mankind, I think. But I wore what I had, and I came as I was. And as we were standing before the altar um, preparing to serve communion, I was standing next to the gentleman who was going to help me serve communion. And I, at first I glanced at him and I thought to myself, I think I know this individual. And then I gave him a second look and it, I realized that he was the base commander at Kadena Air Force Base. Now here I was, a lowly airman, and this man uh, was the commander of the Air Force Base. And on the one hand, I already felt mortified by the manner in which I was dressed. Again, I didn't have nice clothing to wear. But then it dawned on me that the only thing that mattered to this man was all that really needed to matter to me. And that was this, is that we both served one Lord and one master. And that as we stood there side by side, we both stood shoulder to shoulder at the foot of the cross. And brethren, that is all that matters in the end. I have to say to you that I believe that there are many events in our lives that help us to recalibrate and rethink what our values are. 
And I believe that Christmas is another moment in time where we can reevaluate what's really important. Reevaluating our true riches in Christ. Because we live in a world that markets itself in such a way that it's telling you constantly that if you just buy the next thing, that your life somehow will find resolution or peace or clarity or whatever it is that they're proffering as they're selling their wares. But at the end of the day, as a child of God, we have to remember that we have eternal riches in Christ and no one can take that away from us. In fact, no matter what our losses are in this life, nothing can take away the riches that we possess in Christ. I love how it is that the Apostle Paul begins with this very point in principle. When he wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. How does it end? In the beloved. Translators capitalize that word beloved correctly because the one being referred to there is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of the Father's love, and those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ are now in the beloved. Nothing else matters. And Paul calls this the blessings of God. He reminds us that those who are in the beloved have all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We're lacking nothing. Even if someone were to take everything that you have away from you in this world, you still have these blessings in Christ. And I, pr I pray that we would never forget this. You know, men squabble over the possessions of this world. Like children in a sandbox who fight over a mound of sand, we really have no idea how transient and therefore how worthless this world is. And yet our hearts are so quick to covet the possessions of this life. But John warns us against that temptation. He tells us, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and this world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. That's all that matters. The temptation to live for this world, it will always be there, but we have to resist that. And we have to assess, constantly reassess, what really matters in this life. And this is why I've asked you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says this. 
He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, the advocates of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel might try to grab a hold of that verse and claim that the riches that Paul is speaking of are earthly riches, and we know that this isn't true. We know that the Apostle Paul is talking about the riches that are found in Christ, the eternal riches that only he can give. And so, brethren, I would just suggest to you that this is a very crucial text for our understanding as we contemplate the true riches that we possess in the Savior. And in considering this verse, I want us, first of all, to think about the true riches that are found in Christ, number one. Number two, I'd like for us to consider our relative poverty as we compare what Jesus has versus what we possess, our relative poverty. And then finally, I want us to consider as Christians what our riches are in him. So first of all, think with me for a moment concerning the Savior's true riches and how it is that he in his humility descended to this world leaving the riches of glory in heaven that he did possess and this is the point that Paul is making when he says that he became poor what he's talking about is is that Christ divested himself not only of the full use of his deity and power which he had still had as as the one who was very God but he came to this world not living as a wealthy individual, but as one who didn't even have a place to rest his head. And so when he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he what? He became poor. He became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, we recently talked about the kenosis of Christ. We talked about how it is that Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a dulu, a bond slave, and being made in the likeness of men. When we talk about the humility of Christ in his incarnation, one thing we have to understand is this, is that we don't fully comprehend what we're even talking about. Because we don't even understand what it means for one to have infinite riches, infinite power, infinite dominion. And yet, our Savior set these things aside and in humility became a bond slave, dying on the cross in our stead. You know, very soon we're going to be going through the book of Hebrews. And one of the things I love about the book of Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews, at the very beginning, makes sure that we have a proper estimation of who this individual is, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand the exalted nature of the Savior. And so what does he do? Well, he, the book of Hebrews, I've said before, is somewhat of an, a survey of the Old Testament. So he goes into the treasury of the Old Testament and he showcases for us the beauty and the glory of the Messiah and how it is that he possesses all things and has all dominion over the heavens and the earth. And so he draws from, for example, Psalm 2 and verse 8, which says, where the father says to the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ owns it all. Or Psalm 110, which thematically is found throughout the book of Hebrews, where it says that the Lord says to my Lord, that is the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Sion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. He has all dominion, all power, all authority, and someday he will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath, as it says in Psalm 110 and verse 10, and verse 5, rather. And as the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth, and even the angels, the author of Hebrews reminds us of this principle when he draws from Psalm 104 and verse 4, which says that he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers referring to the angels and how it is that Jesus just dispatches the angels to accomplish his will whenever he needs them. He has all this power, all this dominion, all this authority, and yet he set it aside and became a bond slave. You know, brethren, I, I will say this, in sharing my testimony, um, a few weeks ago, I made mention of the fact that that the Lord drew me, initially drew me when I was hearing the word of God being preached from the gospel of John in John chapter 1. It's remarkable that John begins with a, a very different genealogy, if you will. Um, remember, Matthew begins with a genealogy beginning with Abraham. Um, Luke goes as far as Adam but John goes all the way back to eternity. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was proston theon, face to face with God the Father. And then he says, and the word was God, sharing the absolute equality of essence and deity of the Father. And then he says in verse 3, all things came into being through him. And I love this. He says, just, just in case you're guessing, to wonder if there's something else that exists in creation that came into existence apart from me. He says, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's saying, basically, don't imagine that there's something in existence that came into being apart from his handiwork. It doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And that's why when Jude refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the monon despotane, the only despot, that's a word that we get from the Germanic language, it's believed, which speaks of the idea of one who is the Lord of a house, speaking of the idea of one who has absolute rule and authority and ownership. Jesus is that, he has that, he owns it all, he made it all. So there are no co-creators. There's no one who can share his glory. By the way, when John says that in John chapter 1 and verse 3, when he says, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being, I do believe that he is refuting some of the Jewish traditions that existed in the time that believed that some of the angel, angels uh, helped God in creation in the sense that they, they were actually partners 
in the creative work. And I think I mentioned to you before that they believed in a, an angel called Metatron who actually shared the essence of deity with, with God. It was really a heretical view, but um, there were all kinds of heretical views that existed in the day, but John is basically saying, no, these things do not exist. There's no co-creator to the Lord himself. And that's why it says, that's why the Lord says in Psalm 50, Every beast of the forest, he says, is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. And why is that? Because he made it. He made it all. And so the author of Hebrews adds to his argument of the exalted nature of Christ. He draws from Psalm 104, which says that the earth is full of his possessions. Again, it's all his. It's all his. And so this one who was existing in all of eternity who was prostantheon, face to face with the Father, who shared the very essence of deity with God the Father as the one who was very God, this one who is called the Word, the eternal Word, John says in John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what's so sad and remarkable is that, is that this one who created the heavens and the earth entered into this world and he was rejected by men. Rather than be, being received as the Lord of glory as he deserved, he received rejection. And this is why John also says in John chapter 1 in verse 10, he says he was in the world and the world did not know him. As Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He deserved to be served. He deserved to be honored. He deserved to be glorified. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the humility of Christ, who having all these riches, set all this aside, humbling himself, becoming a bond slave, humbling himself to the point of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Our Savior, who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is the one who subjected himself to a meager living, and he subjected himself to the hostility of sinful men in order to accomplish the Father's will. Christ, through whom all things came into being, did not, did, uh, uh, did not come into this world in luxury. Though he owned the cattle on a thousand hills, he did not pamper himself with an earthly mansion and the luxuries of this life. But rather, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But as Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But the one thing that our Savior desired to do the one strong appetite that he did have was to do the Father's will. It wasn't to live in luxury. It wasn't to pamper himself. 
It was to do the Father's will. And he referred to the Father's will as food. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Brethren, what the men of this world do not understand is that the possession of things do not constitute true riches, nor does it make our life any better. If you could amass more wealth, more possession, more property, your, your life is not made better thereby. And I say this with the authority of Scripture itself. Jesus said to the disciples, Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, he warns the disciples against this dangerous form of thinking. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now think about that for a moment. That's a remarkable statement. I had someone share with me some time ago that a celebrity said to him that the individual who dies with the most toys wins. Now, I, I consider that an honest confession because a lot of people think that way, don't they? Yeah, if I could just get more stuff, then my life is going to be better, and, and I win if I have all the stuff. That's the way the human mind thinks. But notice what Jesus says. He says, not even when one has an abundance does his zoe life consist of his possessions. There are a number of different words that are used and translated as the word life. But here the word zoe, life, as one commentator says, often speaks of life in the absolute sense. Life as God has it. That which the Father has in himself, which the Son manifested in the world, 1 John 1, 2. From this life, man has become alienated in consequence of the fall. And we don't regain that life through the possession of things. Men often try to amass riches as if they could build a, a tower of Babel to heaven, ascending the heights of heaven, but we have to remember and we have to understand that not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Instead, knowing Christ, being known and loved by him, this is what enables us to enjoy a foretaste of heaven divine and have true life a life that endures forever, and a life that is rooted in true peace and joy. One of the reasons why I love the book of Revelation, I, I realize the book of Revelation oftentimes is the, the point of a lot of debates and contests about eschatology, but I, I think it's shameful and, and unfortunate that the book of Revelation gets this treatment because, brethren, you sit down and just read that book, and you know what? You get to know how this whole thing ends. It's like reading the end of any book. You get to know Jesus is the victor. Remember we talked about re recently that he is the victor. He is the one who establishes the absolute victory for his people. And that's why we read that with joy. But when you go to the book of Revelation, you see the praise and worship of our God in that book, and particularly in chapter 4, we see the 24 elders doing three important things when they behold God in all of his glory. Number one, 
they fall down and worship the Lord. We'll start there. Number two, they cast their crowns before the throne and then they sing this song. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's the reason. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Worthy, they say. Worthy. That word in the Greek comes from the word axios, and it speaks of the idea of a set of scales. Whenever you're measuring something and you want to see how much it weighs, you put something on a scale, you put the thing that you're measuring on a scale, and then you put a counterweight on it in order to evaluate the actual weight of the thing that you're assessing. And here they're saying that God in his infinite worth and value, he's worthy, and when you put his valuation on the scale, there's no counterweight. It just drops. Worthy. Worthy is the Lord. And as for their crowns, they don't hang on to them and say, no, this is mine. I'm keeping it. Or they don't pull out a cell phone and take a selfie and just kind of enjoy the, the grandeur of their crowns. No, they immediately cast their crowns before the Lord as they worship him. This is what the regenerate children of God do because they see the infinite worth of God, even though we can't fully comprehend it, but we know and understand God is worthy of praise, not we ourselves. He is the possessor of true riches. And so we go to him. Matthew Henry is right when he comments on this text and says, They, the 24 elders, owe all their graces and all their glories to him and acknowledge that his crown is infinitely more glorious than theirs and that it is their glory to be glorifying God. That is our glory, is to glorify not ourselves, but to, to, to glorify the one who redeemed us. This is what we need to see and consider when we evaluate the riches of Christ. But as we evaluate the riches of our God, we also need to consider our own poverty. Our own poverty. Brethren, and this is our second point. Brethren, we enter into this world as destitute sinners. And that's just the plain truth. Paul, when he describes our condition as fallen human beings, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the who? The ungodly. And then he says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And when you put all that together, and you look at that remarkable statement, which says that God reconciled us through the death of his son, and he did it when? While we were running to God, while we were doing acts of righteousness when we were loving him? No, it says, while we were enemies. And literally in the Greek, it is ontes. We get the word ontology uh, from the word ontos or ontes. It speaks of this idea of the essential nature of a person or a thing. 
And what Paul is saying is, is that our essential nature was enmity and that we were in perpetuity. And this is the concept here, is perpetuity. We weren't just occasionally enemies of God. We weren't just occasionally having bad days where you know, we were just offending him. No, Paul is saying that God extended his mercy and grace to us while we were in perpetuity exhibiting enmity against him. No person can look at this and say, ah, God saved me because I deserved it. God saved me because he saw in me that I'd, I'd really make out a, a, a great Christian. Now, in fact, I would say to you, that text and that description of our condition in Romans 5.10 reminds us of the fact that we're not just bankrupt. You know, if you go to your bank account and you run out of money, you get a, you get a zero, right? That's an empty bank account. We weren't on zero, we were in the negative ledger and column. Because that's what sin does. It puts us in the negative column of things. When Paul says that the wages of sin is death, he's helping us to understand that the natural man, he does earn and merit something, but it is death and condemnation. It's not a big fat zero that he earns, it is death and condemnation. Death isn't merely the absence of life, but it is the very opposite of life, and it is that which is necrotic and actually decays and destroys. I've explained to some of you, I, I know that, and not to go into too much detail, but after I had my, my lung operation where they took out a part of my lung, um, I had bones in my jaw that were broken and... Uh, were actually separated from my jaw and they were just inside my, my jawbone, just hanging there. And, uh, and uh, I had this horrible pain after the surgery and I, we looked into it and so forth. And yeah, I had necrotic bone fragments inside my jaw and, uh, and it was creating all this infection. Something that's dead just doesn't sit there and do nothing, it actually brings about infection and decay. That's the idea. That's why, and brethren, I realize it's, it's a hard picture and it's a hard pill to swallow, but we have to see it and, and receive it for what it is. When Paul says, speaking of the Ephesian believers, he says, and you were necrus, dead, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he calls them children of wrath. Meaning, you were living a life that was meriting the wrath of God. Because your, your walk was necrotic. It was full of decay and destruction. That word necros is very important. It's not the word thanatos. If somebody were to die in your presence and you came up to them and you, you checked their pulse and you saw that they had no pulse, the body would still be warm. You would say that that individual thanatos, they died. They just died. But we use the word necros and it is typically used in the New Testament to speak of someone who has not just died in the moment, but someone who has been dead. 
and the necrotic decay is now taking place. And again, I'm just giving you the, the language that's here in the text. Paul says that's what we were spiritually. We were decaying. We were destroying everything around us. And in the eyes of God, we were nothing but children deserving wrath. Children of wrath. And that's why when Paul says at the beginning of that same epistle, when he says, in him we have, not might have, will have in the future, but presently and in an indicative and real sense, we have redemption, lutron, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? According to the riches of his grace. God, out of the bounty of his riches, the riches of his grace, poured out those riches upon us, not because we deserved it, but because it pleased him to do so, because of his sovereign love. And he made us his children. Brethren, when I say, when we confess together that we have no greater gift but the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he gives, we have to understand that is the most real and most true thing we could ever confess. A.T. Robertson says it this way, Paul makes the blood of Christ the cost of redemption, the ransom money for our redemption. And he paid it all, every bit of it. The Lord did not take us and issue his gracious gift of salvation to those who were just a little impoverished. But instead he gave the infinite wealth of Christ whose debt was beyond human measure. And this is why when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Dear brethren, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are among the wealthiest people on this planet. And we have to remember that. If we live as spirit, spiritual paupers, that's our fault. It's not his because he has lavished his grace upon us in an immeasurable capacity. Finally, brethren, this is why I want to end with enjoining you to consider the riches that you have in the Savior. If you're a child of God this morning, dwell heavily on this, and not just because it's Christmas. Brethren, this needs to be our daily meditation to consider the riches that we have in the Savior. You know, John 3.16 is perhaps one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. And yet I think it is often very much misunderstood. The Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to Nicodemus, said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here again, he's using the word Zoe, this is speaking of the life that is the life of God, the life that God imparts to us, the life that is rooted in the true joy and peace that we have in the Savior. And this is the life 
that is not upheld by the things that we possess. Such life is not improved by achieving greater riches, amassing greater riches, but it is secured only by believing in the Son of God. Those who know Christ are no longer children of wrath, but now we're the children of God. As John says in 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And as such, brethren, we are indeed wealthy people. We have been ushered into a royal household as children of the King of Kings, and that will never end. And so when the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he later on in chapter 3 and verse 8 speaks of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Again, these things are ours. This is not merely a future thing that we'll receive, and truly when we're in glory, we'll behold these riches more clearly because we won't have the veil of sin. But brethren, these things are ours now. And we must live in view of those riches. Spurgeon says this, regarding the unfathomable riches of Christ, he says, my master has riches beyond the eloquence of words, beyond the dream of imagination, beyond the count of arithmetic, and beyond the measurement of reason. They are unsearchable. You may look and study and weigh, but when your thoughts are at the greatest, Jesus is a greater savior than you think him to be. My Lord is more ready to pardon than you to sin more able to forgive than you to transgress. My master is more willing to supply your needs than you are to ask for them. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. When you put the crown on his head, you will only crown him with silver when he actually deserves gold. Our estimation and understanding of the riches of Christ will always fall short of what he deserves and what he possesses. So brethren, I wish to exhort you as we close here in this manner. If you do not know Christ, all these riches of which we have spoken, they are not yours. They could be and can be if you place your faith and trust in Christ. But I say to you, do not let the devil and this world deceive you. True joy and peace is not achieved by amassing more stuff. Clinging to the things of this world for life and joy is like clinging to a boat anchor, imagining that it's a floating device, when in reality, all that it's going to do is sink you to the depths of your own destruction. You have to understand this. The human tendency is to think that if I just have more things, my life will be better. I'll have more true life. And the reality is, that's the deception of the devil. Secondly, and again to unbelievers, I just read John 3.16, and I'm sure that you've heard this before. As an unbeliever, I heard this verse many times. I didn't really understand 
it and its context, ultimately. Again, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For, he says, verse 17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And then verse 18, which is oftentimes ignored or avoided, issues the warning that should be given whenever we share the gospel. Because there Jesus says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in verse 36 it says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Brethren, there is no third way. It is either heaven or hell. It is either Christ or damnation. It's simply that simple. And so I, this morning, enjoin you. Embrace the true riches that are found in Christ. Embrace the forgiveness that only he can give. All men are born into this world as children of wrath but they can be made the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And to believers here this morning, I say to you, let's use every opportunity that we can to speak to others about the Savior. And I know that you hold that priority and thought, but even Christmas season, I've said to a number of people, the Christmas season is kind of, kind of an interesting time because this is a time in which it doesn't seem that unusual to maybe knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm your neighbor, and uh, let me give you a Christmas gift here and, and so forth, or uh, some cookies or something. That, that doesn't seem too strange or alien. Culturally, that's uh, something that seems to be permissible. The last few Wednesdays at the Parsonage, I've been sharing um, and have provided this track, this gospel track that is based upon the hymn, What Child Is This?, and you know the hymn, it's a, it's a tremendous hymn, it's a rich hymn, and I've got to say, it's one of those hymns that is so rich in the gospel that it's almost impossible not to share the gospel in the consideration of it. The first verse declares Christ to be the king. The second verse speaks of his work on the cross. Nails spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. These tracks are available in the foyer, and brethren, if you have the opportunity, take some, give, give one or two to a neighbor of yours, and share with them the beautiful message that is contained in this hymn. There are so many hymns that share the gospel but this is a rich opportunity for us to speak to others about true riches. And so may the Lord provide us with such opportunities to do just that. And so having mentioned the hymn, What Child Is This? Let's stand together and let's close our time by singing this hymn.